If I was captured and imprisoned, stripped of everything, and only allowed to take with me one page from the Bible, I think I know what page I would choose. It it would be a page with two short chapters, Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. Today, we'll look at chapter 4, and next week, it's chapter 5. Before you open your Bible and turn there, let's engage with several, several of our Ellerslie kids and listen to chapter 4. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me, like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, it never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to Him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worships Him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Thank you, Danae, Tisha, Miranda, and Serena. Several weeks ago, uh, one of the first warm days in May, I was walking the trail from my house to the church, and as I passed one of the houses, a woman I'd never met was raking in her backyard. She smiled warmly as I approached, as if I was the first person she'd seen in weeks, which may not have been far from the truth, and we struck up a conversation. I said something like, what an awesome day. You look like you're enjoying being able to go outside and do some work. She agreed and said, what a great day for a walk. And I said, yes, it is. And then seeing the loaded courier bag on my shoulders, she said, it looks like you're on your way to work too. I said, yes, I am. She paused as if she was wondering whether she would say what was on her mind. And then she said, do you work at the church over there? I said, as a matter of fact, I do. And she said, oh, that is such a good church. I said, oh, I'm not sure I've met you. Are you part of the church? She said, oh, no, no, we're part of another church, a much smaller church, but occasionally we slip in and take a service there. We love what you're doing. I said, well, I'm not sure what your church is doing during this COVID season, but we'd love to have you join us on Sundays. And I told her how she could do that. And then I added, 
Actually, we're doing something in our Sunday teaching that I'm not sure any other church is doing during this time. We're working through the book of Revelation. It was like a light suddenly switched off. Her bright and warm affect immediately turned darker and cooler. And she said, oh, that wouldn't be for us. I said, really? She said, that, that, would, that would be too gruesome. It, it seemed like she was saying that hearing what was said in the book of Revelation would just amp up her anxiety. I said, oh, but it's a book about hope. She looked at me and shook her head and, and, and said, almost sadly, people like us could never see it that way. And she started raking again and I realized the conversation was over. So what is this book? It is, as we read in chapter 1, verse 1, it is the revelation, the unveiling, the, the, the pulling back the curtain to see what's behind, underneath, and above, and around all reality, the revelation of Jesus. And it says in verse 3, blessed are those who read and hear and take heart to what is written in it. Not afraid, blessed. To see and know Jesus in his fullness is, is, is to not have to fear either him or anything else. I love the way one commentator, uh, Joseph Mangina, outlines the book of Revelation. In chapters 1 to 3, he says, we see Jesus as the prophet, the revealer of truth, the one with the sword of the word of God in his mouth, evaluating the church by the plumb line of God's word. Jesus, the only one whose perspective I need on anything. In chapters 4 to 11, which we'll begin today, Jesus as priest or as the lamb, the only advocate, the only representative I need today and forever. And then in chapters 12 to 20, we see Jesus as the warrior king who conquers and brings down Babylon. Jesus, the only one I need to fight for me. And the last two chapters, Jesus as the bridegroom, who invites me to what he calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus, the true intimacy I crave and the only relationship that ultimately matters. To be hostaged by hope is to see and to know and to, be, to experience the real Jesus, the complete Jesus in these ways, especially in times like these. Reminders that, that there are things Things like an unseen virus that we can't see and can't control. Things like injustice and riots that we can see and can't control. Things like world leaders posturing and threatening or abdicating or, or grasping at straws or hiding. These are the times when we desperately need to see what's really going on. These visions of Jesus in this book are, are like grand, glorious mountain peaks on our journey. One of my favorite sites is Mount Robson. I love coming, coming from the west, rounding the corner, and boom, there it is. When our son was 13 years old, he and I and two other dads and their 13, 14-year-old sons took a trip to Mount Robson together. We, we rounded that corner right at sunset. The skies were clear. And blasting on the sound system was the climax of my son's favorite song at the time, 
which was the, tight, uh, the Remember the Titans theme song. It was amazing. Mount Robson is always there, but, but it's not often you get to see it in all its glory. And every time I do, I, I want to stop and take another picture. I think I have more pictures of Mount Robson than any other scene. The last time we went by it, I, we, were, we were driving west. And after we passed it and realized it was a clear day, I said, let's stop. And we turned around, went back to that corner and took another picture. That's what Revelation 4 and 5 is. It's, it's one of the mountain peaks in this book. Actually, it's the dominating mountain peak. The Mount Robson vision that this book gives us. It's actually one vision. These two chapters, one grand mountain with two glorious peaks. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 are, are mountain peaks in more than one way. You see, these two chapters are a summary of the entire picture. The big picture, the entire story arc of the Bible. Chapter 4 which we'll see today, is a summary of the big message, the mountain peak of the Old Testament. Chapter 5 is a summary of the, of the major mountain peak truths of the New Testament. So let's look a little closer at chapter 4, which starts this whole new section of the book. After this, I looked. After what? After that first vision of Jesus doing this walk-around hope inspection of his church, affirming their strengths, exposing their gaps, and always an invitation to see him more clearly and follow him more fully. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Remember that voice? Chapter 1, verse 10, it's, it's the voice that narrated the first vision. I was on Patmos, John said, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now he hears that same voice again, and it says, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. I will show you what? What has to, what must, what's necessary to happen after this. So does that mean this vision of chapter 4 and 5 is part of what may take place sometime in the future, John's future or our future? Well, no. It's in chapter 6 that we begin to see these things that Jesus says have to happen, things that include some, some dramatic and, and could be scary stuff. But what Jesus allows John to see first, first, before the things that have to happen, is this vision in chapters 4 and 5, of what is true now, from the heavenlies, in the unseen realm, to put into context what will happen. These two chapters tell us why what will happen has to happen, why it must take place. This vision is to help John and help us look past all of the scary and confusing and, and wrong things that are happening now not with fear and frustration and anger, but with confidence and anticipation and hope. When I graduated from high school, I was offered a small scholarship to play university basketball. And I was not great, but I was a hard worker. And they were willing to take a, take a flyer on me as a long shot. And I went to the ID camp in April and it started on Friday night. Now, this is the early 70s, okay, which followed the 60s. 
and, and the new coach of this team was into trying some new things, and he was a child of the 60s. And so on Friday night, the first thing we did is he brings all of us, including the current team, not to the gym, but to the team room, which was dark with lava lamps glowing all around and incense burning and mood music softly playing. And before we talked basketball, the coach invited us to close our eyes and do some visualization and something that he called centering. This was going to be his secret sauce. I talked to one of the guys that I had played in high school against uh, who was part of this freshman on the team the last year. And he said, I, I said to him, what's with that? He said, oh, it's just his thing. And, and although some people might have thought this was cool or some people might have thought it was scary or spooky, I, I just thought it was weird. I, I didn't go there, but as time went on, I realized this coach was onto something, something important, something necessary, but doing it in a way that certainly was missing the mark. You see, centering, grounding has, has become a, a, a common practice or a common coaching thing as it should be. But what John shows us in this chapter is a simple and powerful centering exercise that makes all the difference. It's like God is saying, John, I I will show you some things that could be overwhelming, scary even, but before you see those things, I want to make sure you are grounded, centered, Rooted fully in a grand reality that is and was and always will be. See, this reality in which we are to be grounded, centered, which is stronger and more stable than than anything that comes at us and is more rich and full, anything that taken away from us is based on two questions that we need to ask ourselves. Number one, what are you seeing? You see, we can choose what we see. And the second, what are you doing about what you are seeing? Those are the only two centering questions that really matter. At once, he says, I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Folks, in that verse, we have the message of this chapter. The one thing John wants, or Jesus wants John to see, the one thing God wants us to know, so that we will be grounded in this life here, in the reality in which we live, so that nothing can take us out and nothing can distract us away. At the center of everything, at the heart of it all, there is a throne, an occupied throne. Someone was seated on the throne. To be seated on the throne was the position of, well, of secure authority. He's in charge. He's not charging all over the place to put out fires. He's secure in his authority. He is seated on the throne. This is the message that we saw several years ago in the book of Daniel. There is one who is in control of all who are in control. Eleven times in this chapter, eleven verses, eleven times is the word throne. In our English translation, sometimes it's just the word it or them because it feels too repetitive to keep using the word throne. Actually, the word throne is there 13 times, but twice in verse 4. It's not talking about the throne, but we'll get to that in verse 4. 
What, what captures John's vision is an occupied throne. And everything, everyone is described in this chapter in relationship to the throne. Everything happens from the throne, toward the throne, or around the throne. You see, Revelation 4 and 5 shows what makes Christian faith, biblical faith, different than any other worldview. Atheism and materialism says, ah, there is no throne. No authority or power that the entire universe has to answer, answer to. Pantheism says, well, there's, there, there, there's, a, there's a bunch of thrones in the universe, a bunch of gods fighting for superiority. You can choose your god. But we can't really live without the idea of the throne. And so, so humanism says there's a throne, but, but humans sit on it. In fact, there are many thrones. We all have control of our own destiny and we just need to learn to get along. And how's that going for us, folks? Christianity, along with Judaism, Islam, and some minor offshoots, declare that there is one on the throne and it's not up for a vote who it's going to be. And in the end, it won't even be a fight. That's what we see in chapter 4. Chapter 5, we see what separates Christian faith from, from all of the other monotheistic faiths. This is the rock bottom foundation for the story of the Bible. This universe has a throne and it's occupied with no contenders. John isn't the first guy to have been given a vision of the throne. Isaiah saw it in chapter 6. Ezekiel saw it. Daniel saw it in chapter 7. And, and although the, the word throne isn't used, this is the same thing that Elisha, the prophet, sees, but, but his servant can't. The king of the city of Aram, we find the, the account in 2 Kings chapter 6, where the king of the city of Aram has decided to take out God's people. They're, they're bigger. They have the technology Israel doesn't have, but Israel always seems to have the necessary intel to keep them at bay. And the king thinks that Someone must be leaking their plans to the Israelites. But he's told the prophet of Israel's God, who, I love the way the spies put it in, in chapter 6 of, of 2 Kings. He says, there's a prophet that tells the king of Israel the very words you're speaking in your bedroom. So this powerful king of Aram just has to do one thing. Find Elisha, take him out. He finds out where he is. And he sends, not a SWAT team, but a whole troop. He sends them in at night to surround Elisha's compound. Talk about overkill. This is not just about Elisha. This is a show of force for all of Israel's people. The next morning, Elisha's servant goes out on the deck to have his first cup of coffee. And he sees an army with horses and, and chariots surrounding they're one house. Can you imagine what that was like? Can you imagine what he did? Well, we won't talk about what he might have done. But when he got back into the house, he says, Oh, no, master, what are we going to do now? And Elisha says to him, You're not afraid, are you? Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then he prays that great prayer. Open his eyes, Lord, so that he can see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked up and, 
Are you seeing John on Patmos here, by the way? And he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And God blinds the eyes of the army so they can't see. He confuses their thinking. And Elisha says, hey, the guy you're looking for isn't here, but, but I'll lead you to him. And he leads them right into a trap. You see, what John is saying is, is, is given to see is that the story he knows, the story of the creation by a sovereign God, an all-powerful creator and sustaining God who not only created everything good to be under him and centered around him, but he will create everything to be perfect forever. That story is still real. He's still got it under control and it's still going to happen. Now to get the full impact of this vision of Revelation 4, we have to backtrack just a bit to the end of the last section, to, to the way John ends his last vision to help us to see how it is we get to see this vision of the throne. How does the last section, the first vision end? Ch chapter 3, verse 20, with that, that great invitation where John says, here I am, or, or look actually, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. That, that word, here I am, or as the old translations say, behold, it's, it's a hard, word that's hard to translate in English, but it's, it's somewhat like the, the, the French word, or at least the way we use the French word, voila, look, I'm standing at the door. The what? The door, knocking. If anyone opens the door, does what? Opens the door, I will come in and we'll have an intimate meal together. Now look closely at how chapter four starts. After this, I looked, different word, and here's our word, voila, behold, there was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had heard speaking to me at first like a trumpet said, come up here. Can you see the parallels? I will come in. You know, we often focus on what it might feel like to allow Jesus to come in. And the feelings that come, they do to varying degrees, but feelings are never a foundation for anything. What John is given the privilege of seeing on Patmos, for us, is that when we open the door for Jesus to come in, to allow our hearts to be taken over by his throne, what we get is a whole new kind of seeing everything and living in reality. All of reality begins by seeing, knowing, and remembering that there is a throne. Remember those circles that we ta we've talked about several times, the, the three real worlds that Revelation assumes and introduces us to? This chapter makes us look at those circles in a whole different light. It, it's not the world of the streets and then the world of my mind and the world of the heavenly somewhere out there. It's the other way around. At the heart of reality, the core real world is the world of the throne. And when I see Jesus for who he is and accept his love for me and his leadership over me, I get to see everything in my, what I often call the real world, about myself, the good and the bad, 
And there's both. It's not all good. The beautiful and the ugly, and there's both. I get to see them in the perspective that because the one to whom I have given my heart is the one on the throne, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, all things will work together, are working together for the good of those who love him. So why am I fighting and forcing things? Why am I worried or anxious about things? Why am I doubting and demanding? Why am I skeptical and discouraged? Jesus is saying, open your eyes. There is a throne. It is occupied and the one seated on it is securely in control. And it's the one you have invited into your heart. What are you seeing? Are you seeing the throne at the center? How might it impact what you are wrestling with today? If you really allowed yourself to see that at the center of it all is an occupied throne, maybe there would be less worry, maybe less demanding, maybe less comparing what others have and you don't. Would that not affect everything? So let's move on to take a look at the rest of this vision. What else does John see when he sees the throne? Verse 3. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. Jasper and ruby or carnelian. He knows those stones. Those were the first and last stones that were on the breastplate of the high priest in the Old Testament. Jasper, clear, almost like a diamond. Ruby was red. This is can't, your take, can't take your eyes off it beauty. It is absolute, no blemish purity. Perhaps as John thinks about these stones, he realizes that Jesus has fulfilled all of the story of the Old Testament. On the glistening white stone, he sees a reminder of the brilliance and glory of Jesus' empty tomb. And the ruby red is the blood of Jesus shed for him on the cross. Both of these coming together. We're going to talk more about that next week. But, but then something else catches his eye. A rainbow. Verse 3. That shone like an emerald. Encircled the entire throne wrapped around the throne. And John is reminded that Jesus on that throne is not just the sovereign, all-powerful creator God of might and glory. He is the God who has one limit to his sovereignty and his power. It's a limit that he imposed on himself. He is a God who has limited himself by his promise. The first rainbow after God wiped out all humanity in a flood except for Noah, after the whole, after the whole ordeal God, is over, God says, in spite of the fact that the human heart is an idol factory, always going its own way, I will never again destroy it all. You see, on that throne, John, John sees the one who allowed himself to be destroyed for us. So God could keep and will keep his promise. A throne, as someone says, has, uh, has said, one commentator says, I, a throne says, I can do whatever I want. I, a, a rainbow says, I will fulfill my promise to you because I cannot do otherwise. There is a promise, a promise to you 
that directs how God will use his sovereign control. Now let's skip down to, to verse 6. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In God's story, at the beginning, and we'll see at the end as well, the sea represents chaos, disorder, death. It's out of a dark and chaotic sea that God created order and life. It's the sea that Jesus calmed. And now John is given the vision that in the presence of this Jesus, still, all chaos is calm. That's what happens when we open the door to Jesus. He opens our eyes to see what is really real. Yes, the world around me is chaotic, but it cannot touch the real me. By the way, when God's new creation is complete, as we're going to see in the last two chapters of the book, and is given to us, one of the things John notices in the new creation is there is no longer any sea. All chaos, all disorder will be gone forever. But for now, what God does is he lets us see that in his presence, the sea is calm. And, and then John sees a little bit more in, in verse 4. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. What does John see? He sees, he sees the creation, the way God intended it to be. It, it seems best, I think, to see these 24 elders as re representing all of humanity that are truly God's people. 24 is 12 plus 12, so 12 tribes of God's people and God's old covenant people, 12 apostles representing Jesus' new covenant leadership circle. Where are these redeemed people? They are on thrones. This is the way it was supposed to be in creation. Humanity, the representatives of God in creation, ruling under God, over creation for God. Ruling, not for myself to make me look good, but, but under God, ruling together over all of creation for him. Are you beginning to see how this chapter is a summary of the whole Old Testament story? And joining with these people who are God's people are, are four of the, the most glorious creatures that he could think of, which probably, I think, represent the rest of animate creation, or, or perhaps all of, of angelic creation. And these creatures move us toward the second question this vision answers, answers for us about centering. The question is not just, what do I see? The question is, what am I doing about what I see? Four glorious creatures. And what are they doing? It says they're worshiping. They're saying, verse 8, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They are worshiping the one who is eternal and never changes. The one who is Sovereign, all-powerful, the only all-powerful one. They worship, and then in response to their worship, these 24 elders also worship. Verse 11, you are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power because you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Do you notice the difference between what the 
the humans are saying and what the other created beings are saying? The other creatures are saying, holy, 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 perfect and pure, absolutely separate and other. They're making a a, a statement about an objective fact. It's who God is. He is above, he is other, he is over all. Now, the human worshipers are not disagreeing with that, but their statement takes it one step further. Their statement is something that only humans can say. You are worthy. That's a statement only humans can make because that is a statement about value. It's a statement about rights. The struggle human beings have that no other creation can have is what is it that I will choose to make my core value? What do I make as my absolute center, my ultimate reality? I get to choose that. And what makes him worthy? What is it that gives him the right He created all things. Anything that came to be, he created. You know, we might bristle a bit when we hear that. In the book of Corinthians, Paul applies that truth to our own sexuality. When he says, your body is owned by him. He has that right. We may bristle at that, but we actually do believe that. In our world... Creator's rights are are the foundation for what we call copyright law. Matter of fact, there's an interesting um, incident that happened in 1988. A group of comic book writers got together and they put forward a document of their rights as they perceived them to be and as they intended to preserve them to be. There were 12 basic rights. Just listen just to the first three. Number one, the right to full ownership of what we fully create. Number two, the right to full control over the creative execution of what we fully own. And number three, the right to approve any reproduction and format of our creative property. You see, we believe that about ourselves. But I wonder if we lived in light of the rights of the real original creator, it wouldn't deal with a lot of our frustrations, our fears, our anger, our bitterness, our confusion, our demands. Don't those feelings, those, those perspectives that we develop, those issues that we have, don't, aren't, aren't they taken care of mostly when I put God's rights above my rights? So would you ask yourself this week, in what way might might my struggles, my perspectives on things change if I put God's rights above my rights? If I saw the throne at the center and was humbled, humbled that I am honored to allow to even be there, would that not change everything? So how would that change everything about what I do? 
Well, what is it these, these elders, these humans, these redeemed humans do when they put God's creator rights above their own rights? Verse 10. Verse 10. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever. They lay their crowns before him because he is worthy. What are they doing? They are surrendering, surrendering, tangibly laying down, tangibly letting go before the throne everything about themselves, their achievements, their dreams, their issues, what they think they deserve. They're, they're letting it go to him. They do not claim them. They do not own them. And so it's not a big deal whether other people notice them or recognize them. I am his. And so these are his. And there we have the centering pattern. That's it. Seeing and surrendering. Seeing the one who is on the throne and surrendering everything to the one who is at the center of it all. There's that wonderful old, well, it's, it's old to some of us, uh, comes from Bill and Gloria Gaither, one of, their, one of their greatest songs that they ever wrote, Because He Lives. I love the line in that book, which is what Paul or John gets from the vision of Revelation chapter 4. I know who holds the future, and I know he holds my hand. That is centered living. Are you in it?